This is the word of God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become, she who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the providences has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper, because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wanderings all the precious things that were hers from days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her, her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things. For she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you, all who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint, all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear, all you peoples, and see my suffering. 
My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me. Because all of my transgressions, for my groans are many and my heart is faint. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Thanks be to God. Memorials matter, brothers and sisters. Consider the Vietnam Wall or the the Holocaust Museum or the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. These are all designed to do what? But to help people like you and I remember and mourn and learn. Well, I want to submit to you, beloved, Lamentations is such a memorial, one that is intended, believe it or not, to cause us to grow in grace. Let me say it a different way. We are to draw near to our Father, more clearly see what Christ has done for us, and more deeply know the presence of the Holy Spirit in and through Lamentations. Now, I realize at first glance that might strike us as strange. How is this book, the single longest lament in all of Scripture, how is this book to be a sweet balm to our soul? After all, it feels less like a wedding and more like a funeral. Well, let's cut to the chase. The book of Lamentations is a book of lament. It's pregnant with mournful loss, agonizing pain, and ongoing misery. To be candid, no other book within Scripture is as dark and depressing as this one. And yet, this is supposed to be good news for us. Well, how can that be? Let let me answer that three ways. Here are three reasons why Lamentations is good. Three reasons why we can learn from Lamentations. First, it is God's word. Now, perhaps that goes without saying, but, but we want to be careful that we don't fall into the trap of thinking, well, all God's spirit gave to the church was like John and Romans and, and Philippians or something like that. No, all of scripture, the whole canon from Genesis to Revelation, it is all God's word and therefore it is all good for us. 2 Timothy 3.16 testifies, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Well, beloved, know this. When Paul says in 2 Timothy that all scripture is breathed out by God, he is principally referring to the Old Testament scriptures which, of course, included Lamentations. So we could say Lamentations is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. 
Similarly, though admittedly not as well known, is a text like Romans 15.4. We are told, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Again, referring to the Old Testament, Paul tells us this was written to instruct us, the church, and encourage us, the church, that we, the church, might have hope. And brothers and sisters, that includes Lamentations. So that's the first reason Lamentations is good for us. It is God's word. Second, well, it is real life. It is real life. Too often, we assume the the normal, healthy Christian life is one where we are always happy. Trouble never comes our way. Tears are never shed. But such an idyllic life, one that is untouched by pain, is simply foreign to the Bible, not to mention the saints down through the history of the church. The truth is, life is hard and messy and difficult. As fallen creatures living in a fallen world, we experience all sorts of affliction and suffering and burden. Do we not? We all know this. Many of us walk with a limp, right? So why is Lamentations good for us? Well, if I can put it this way, it gives us license to lament. I think this is one of those areas where Christians so often fumble. We don't have a place for lament, not in our personal lives and certainly not in our corporate life as a church. We don't know what to do with it. But we should. Job certainly did. David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, did. You know that nearly a third of all the psalms are psalms of lament. Habakkuk was a prophet of lament. And Christ himself is described to us in the prophets as what? A man of sorrows. The fact is, cancer eviscerates. Tragedies strike. Children apostatize. Markets collapse. And as we have seen over the last couple of weeks, war is vicious. But here's the point. We need not march through life as stoics. We can and we should pour out our hearts to God. We can cry out to Him and we can just cry. We are allowed to ask questions. Beloved, we can even complain at times. Don't let popular Christian radio gaslight you here. Lament is not the unicorn of the Christian life. Some mythical creature that we hear about, but we ourselves never encounter. No. Lament is so often close to us. For some of you, it is a part of you. And it will be that way for most of us. If you doubt me, find a saint with gray hair. Or find a saint with no hair. They will set you straight. 
Let me share with you a third reason Lamentations is good. It is God's word, it is real life, and it is God's doing. Let me say that again, it's God's doing. We'll see this throughout the book, and we'll even take note of it here in a couple of moments this morning, but let me just say on the front end that God takes full responsibility for the disaster that his people are experiencing. That is to say, it is God's judgment that they are undergoing. This is important to observe, particularly in a shallow Christian world like ours that tells us that God doesn't judge sin and He certainly doesn't dispense His wrath. Lamentations, of course, is a stiff drink that wakes us up and tells us otherwise. So many well-to-do Christians are fine with the idea of the triune God being sovereign to bless. But so often these same Christians wince when we hear of God being sovereign to judge. Let me mention one more important introductory matter before we begin to unpack the text itself. I want you to notice, and a quick glance will reveal this, Lamentations is five chapters long. But here's the interesting part. Those five chapters are actually a collection of five poems. Poems that mourn the most tragic day in the history of Judah. The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in the year 586 B.C. We can scarcely imagine the carnage that was unleashed by this event. Suffering would be, to put it, mildly. What led up to the sacking of Jerusalem and what followed was nothing less than unparalleled disease, famine, suffering, and death. It was so vile, the prophet Jeremiah, who was also the one who penned Lamentations, I should say, the prophet tells us that mothers resorted to eating their own children to survive. That's how vile this is. But nonetheless, Lamentations is not merely an outburst of wrath or the release of pent-up rage. The prophet here isn't merely just venting or something like that. And we know that is not the case because even in the midst of this great distress, there is great design. Here's what I mean. Chapters 1, 2, 4, and 5 all have 22 verses. Chapter 3, which is right in the middle, is the exception with 66 verses. So right on the surface, that should alert us to some sort of design, right? You've got five chapters, four of which all have 22 verses, and the one right in the middle has 66 verses, and for you math buffs, that's 22 times 3. So something is going on here. There's even more. Catch this. There just so happens to be 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And chapters 1 and 2 and 4, all three of those chapters are an acrostic. Meaning that the first word of the first line is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, 
And then the second line begins with the second letter of the... And so on and so on. Chapter 3, though, as we already noted, is unique in that it has 66 verses. But even that chapter is an acrostic. This one, though, a triple acrostic. So the first three verses begin with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And then the second three verses begin with the second letter, and so on, and so on. Chapter 5 is equally noteworthy. While it also has 22 verses, it is not, I repeat, not an acrostic. So what do we do with that? How does Lamentations go from design to disorder? Well, it has been suggested, and, and perhaps rightfully so, that chapter 5's deviation from the pattern that characterizes the rest of the book is deliberate. One intended to suggest chaos and despair. I would put it this way. You and I do not always have the ability to cross every T and dot every I when it comes to our suffering. We don't always know all of the details. Sometimes we have to be content to not know why something has been brought into our lives, but we should rest content knowing who brought it into our lives. Now I recognize that as an all too brief introduction, but I do want to get to the text itself. And so we would do well this morning as we look at this first chapter, this first poem, to look at it, I think, from three different angles or vantage points. To begin with, I want you to see how God's people here are afflicted and abandoned, which of course gives rise to their lament. For starters, the, the city there of verse 1 is referring to Jerusalem. This is the, the capital city of God's people. You, you see this throughout the Old Testament. But she, and you'll notice here that, that God's people and God's city are often personified as a woman, she is left afflicted and abandoned. She, middle of verse 1, was great among the nations. She was a princess, we are told. And that's all true. As the, the nation coalesced around King David, it became a powerhouse economically and militarily. The surrounding nations feared King David and the people of God. And this is because God's presence dwelt in their midst and fought their battles for them. This, went all, this goes all the way back to the Exodus when God defeated the Egyptians and delivered his people. After David's reign, his, his son Solomon took over. And you will recall that at least initially, Solomon was, was a pretty good guy. He erected all sorts of palaces and figures, things that were so grand that it would attract the likes of the Queen of Sheba so that she would come and see the wonder of the people of God. You can't help but recognize that Jerusalem was spectacular and magnificent and marvelous. But not anymore. Verse 2 lets us know that the laughter has been turned to mourning. Once a queen, she is now, verses 1 and 3, a slave and a servant. Dignitaries like the queen of Sheba no longer make the trek to this once great city, verse 4. Why? Because, verse 6, all her majesty has departed. 
Everything she had, all the precious things, verse 7, that were hers from of old, they are now gone. Perhaps the clearest way to see how God's people have been afflicted and abandoned is by noting a particular phrase that is repeated five times in Lamentations 1. It makes an appearance first in the middle of verse 2. She has none to comfort her. The middle of verse 7 announces, and there was none to help or comfort her. The middle of verse 9 adds, she has no comforter. Verse 16 chimes in, for a comforter is far from me. Verse 17 quickly adds, but there is none to comfort her. And then verse 21 echoes, Yet there is no one to comfort me. It's a bleak picture for sure, but one that is a reality. Jerusalem, this once holy city of God, it has been altogether overrun by pagans. And as a result, the people of God are troubled beyond relief. They have felt deep in their bones the sting of affliction. And what's worse, God has abandoned them. As the city burns, as they are hauled off into captivity, the deep, dark thought settles upon their souls. God has left us. God is no longer with us. Is this not the worst thing you can imagine? Isn't this really the the DNA of lament? Reflect on your own life for a moment. Does not lament grow in the soil of feeling that God has abandoned you? which in this case is true. God has abandoned His people. We think, why? Who is to blame for this travesty? With whom does the fault lie? And the answer, of course, is with the people of God. But more specifically, it is their sin that has brought them to this afflicted and abandoned state. And so that's the second vantage point from which I want us to see this first poem of Lamentations 1. In short, sin slays. Beloved, this is more than hinted at. Verse 5, for example, announces, Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper. Why? Because the Lord has afflicted her. Okay, well, why has Yahweh afflicted His people? The middle of verse 5 answers, for the multitude of her transgressions. And lest there be any misunderstanding, the word Jeremiah uses here, excuse me, for transgressions, is a word that suggests outright rebellion. In other words, they knew the law. 
They knew what God required of them. This is not a case of sort of ignorance is bliss. It's not like they didn't know any better. They did. This is cosmic treason. Which is what all sin is, by the way. Verses 8 and 9 sort of peel back the layers for us. Verse 8 tells us that Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy, is the language the ESV uses. The point is, through her sin, she became sullied. She became dirty. Verse 9 clarifies, revealing the sort of sin that we are dealing with. Her uncleanness, verse 9, was in her skirts. The picture of verses 8 and 9 are vivid. As God's covenant people, they are to be dedicated and devoted to God alone. They are to serve Him and love Him and worship Him and trust Him and know Him. The same is true for us, by the way. That was not the posture of their heart. Instead, the people of God here are likened to a harlot who shamelessly flaunts her nakedness, her idolatry. Rather than walking in holiness and purity with God, the people have run toward wickedness and other gods. It's a picture really of spiritual adultery. Verses 18 and 20 then shift gears slightly. Sin in that context is portrayed as treason. Verse 18 says, The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against His word. Or the middle of verse 20, I have been very rebellious. Right? It's, it's one thing to sin out of ignorance. It is quite another to defy your king to his face which is what is being described for us here. Verse 22 then rounds out this somber poem. I say it rounds it out because remember in verse 5, we are told this judgment is owing to their transgressions is the language. And now in verse 22, it is repeated. You have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. So step back for a moment. Step back and recognize that in all of this, Lamentations presses three truths about sin to the forefront of our minds. To begin with, sin is serious. So often in our culture, and unfortunately this is true in the church as well, we just sort of wink at sin. Think of the language that's used here in Lamentations. Do we think of sin in terms of transgression? Of treason? Of rebellion? Or is our default mode one where we think of sin as a mess up? A mistake? A boo-boo? Nothing too much to worry about. Sin is serious. Brothers and sisters, I would implore us that would we think about our sin the way that we would think about, say, a terrorist? And I think not. 
So the question is, when will we start to view sin in our own lives and treat sin in our own lives the way that we ought to treat terrorists? In other words, and, and pardon the R-rated illustration here, but Lamentations is unwilling to pull punches, and so am I. You've got to come to see your sin as a terrorist, one who has a gun to your head and has every intention of pulling the trigger. What would you do in that situation? Men, what would you do if you were to discover that a madman had a gun to your wife's head? To your children's head? Would you not in those moments muster up every ounce of strength that you could to subdue that violent aggressor, wrestle the gun from his hand, turn it on him, and put him in the chalk outline? You see, the point is, someone is going to die. As John Owen, the great Puritan, famously said, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. So I want to urge you, Christian, I want to urge you to open your eyes and see how serious sin is. I heard someone make a joke recently. They, the context is sort of hard to communicate, but this, this person that, that I happened to be around had sort of just been caught sort of in the middle of what we might call a little white lie. And the, the other person said to this lying person, well, you know where liars go, don't you? And of course, the answer is supposed to be to hell. But the other person made the joke, well, they go to redeeming grace. or fill, They go to this church, fill in the blank. And I get the joke. It's just not funny. I say it's not funny because it's not funny when we treat something that God hates as trivial. And I use it just as an example. Just as an example, to say that we need to see sin as serious and we need to wake up to that fact like yesterday. Sin is not only serious though, it also steals. What I mean by that is it takes and takes and takes. Sin, like the grave, is never content, never satisfied, but always wants more. And sin will rob you rob you of your purity and integrity. Sin will desensitize your conscience, make your heart callous, neuter your mind, and enslave your will. Not content, it will pillage your soul, leaving you shallow and hollow. Beloved, sin will not just destroy your past and taint your present, it will also stain your future. Just think for a moment of the prophet Jeremiah. We see him here in Lamentations, do we not? And we see him with tears streaming down his face. Why? Because the city has been demolished. The people are being deported. And the temple of God has been destroyed. We saw it a couple of times just in Lamentations 1. They have nothing left. It's all gone. And it's all gone because sin has stolen everything from them. And sin will steal everything from you. 
given the opportunity. Finally, sin slays. In the end, that's what sin does. It kills. It brings ruin. It ruins individuals. It ruins families. It ruins churches. It ruins cities. Beloved, sin ruins nations. Think back to the Old Testament for a moment. Entire nations, you will recall, were uprooted and vomited out of the land because of their sin. Let's not forget, this is why Lamentations exists. It is one long lament over God's holy city being desecrated because of sin. Which also is a reminder to us that most sin, not all, but far and away most sin is of our own doing. Yeah, it's true. We're going to get hit with shrapnel. By that I mean the sin of others. And of course, that sort of shrapnel can wound us in remarkably deep ways. And I'm not trying to minimize any of that. I I understand that we have all been sinned against by others. But the fact remains that most of sin's wounds are self-inflicted. We play Russian roulette, coddling our sin, hiding our sin, in some context, celebrating our sin. And then we are surprised when there is a body lying on the floor. This was certainly true of God's people here in Lamentations, wasn't it? It wasn't the sin of the Amorites or the sin of the Babylonians that brought them to this point. We can put it in our context. It wasn't CNN's fault or Fox News's fault. It wasn't the liberals or the government schools or even Jay Inslee who did this. It was them. It was their sin. It was their idolatry. It was them playing fast and loose with the Word of God and the law of God, thinking that they were the exception to the rule. Thinking that God had nothing to say to them. And they found out the hard way. They found out that sin slays. And it was their sin that slew them. We might sort of backpedal at this point and think that this this all seems a little too severe. Is sin really that serious? The answer is yes. And sin is so serious because what sin does is provokes the wrath of God. We need to have forever settled in our minds the triune God with whom we all have to do. He is altogether holy. He is our creator. He is our judge. And he is righteous. And he is just. And those aren't just his attributes. That's who he is. And because of who he is, we need to understand that our sin is a great affront to him. It aggravates him. Just as a slab of red meat incites the hungry lion, so our rebellious sin provokes the wrath of God. 
Which means our sin will be met with the white hot blaze of God's holy justice. Which also means, and please don't miss this, that Lamentations, the whole book really, is a series of poems lamenting a just judgment. And that brings us to our third and final angle from which I want us to look at this first chapter this morning. God's judgment, as terrifying as it is, is good. And it's right, and it's just. Another way to go after this would be to say that Lamentations is not, I repeat, not like Job. Remember Job? Remember how he is introduced to us? That remarkable drama opens by telling us that Job was blameless and upright. One who feared God and turned away from evil. If, if, you, if you've read Job, particularly the, the first few chapters, it becomes painfully clear that Job suffered because he was faithful. It was Job's faithfulness that, that opened him up to suffering. But the same cannot be said of Jerusalem here. To put it in purely human terms, with Job, God was bragging. With Israel, God was angry. And what followed upon the heels of Israel's sin was God's just judgment. So that when you sort of zoom out from chapter 1, there are three uncomfortable facts that are more than evident. First, is that the people of God are devastated. Second, they utterly deserved it. And three, God did it. In times of old, God would drown the Egyptian army in the waters of the Red Sea. But now here, He has drowned His own people with a tsunami of His wrath. And the fact that this is a just judgment, and the fact that it is inflicted by God, is seen throughout the chapter. Verse 5, for example, it's clear. Because the Lord has afflicted her. In verse 12, you can hear the people cry out, Is it nothing to you, all who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of His fierce anger. Verse 13 is even more haunting. Using the graphic images of fire, a net, and sickness, we read and and follow the pronouns, from on high, He, that is God, from on high, God sent fire. Into my bones, He, again, God made it descend. He, God again, He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned. God, God, God. He, He, He. This passage leaves no doubt. Though Babylon was the cause of such devastation, Babylon was merely a tool in God's hand. God is the source of all 
this calamity. Verse 14, likewise bears witness. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. And then verse 15 adds, causing us to tremble. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He, again, speaking of God, He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. Beloved, the effects of this haunting just judgment are seen, or perhaps better said, heard, by a refrain that is scattered throughout Lamentations 1. It's something of a, of a chorus, a poignant one. In verse 14, you hear the priesthood groan. But very quickly, the whole city joins in. End of verse 8, she herself groans. Verse 11, all her people groan. Verse 21 echoes, they heard my groaning. And then verse 22 concludes the poem with, for my groans are many. Beloved, this groaning is the anthem of the sinner. Make no mistake about it, this is not just Jerusalem's lot. It is ours as well. Sin must be dealt with. And the only way sin is dealt with is with God pouring out His holy and just wrath upon the sinner. Just as He did here with Jerusalem in Lamentations 1. If God doesn't deal with sin, then God's whole character of being good and holy and righteous and just is immediately placed under a microscope. God must deal with every single sin in the universe. That's the point. Which raises the very important question, well then what hope do sinners like us have? And our only hope, of course, is in the Gospel. Maybe more to the point, our hope is in that Christ was crucified for us. Let's think about it like this. For a moment, think about those three angles or vantage points from which we viewed this first poem. Remember what they were? You've got afflicted and abandoned. You've got sin slays. And you've got just judgment. As you're thinking about those three, did not Christ stand in our place and bear in His own body all of it? Isn't that both the good news of the Gospel as well as the wonder of the Gospel? Let's flesh it out. We'll be very brief. Christ was afflicted. He was afflicted as He hung on that cross, suffering what we deserve for our sins. And of course, leading up to those moments, He was mocked, beaten, and scourged. 
He was then fixed to a cross being held between heaven and earth by spikes pinning his naked and shameful body on an old bloody Roman cross. Not only that, as Christ hung there, He was regarded as a sinner. God imputed to Him all our sin. So much so that the perfect Son of God who knew no sin was made to be sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 We saw this a month or so ago in Galatians. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Galatians 3.13 By becoming a curse for us. And here's the point. As the Father cursed His Son, Christ was abandoned. He was left to Himself is what I mean. He was there, as it were, exposed to hell on that cross. God's blessing departed and all that remained was God's wrath. Wrath, mind you, unleashed in full measure upon our substitute. The cross also puts front and center what we've seen from Lamentations 1, and that is that, again, sin slays. Scripture tells us that the wages of sin is death. And on that dark afternoon on that hill just outside of Jerusalem, did not Christ feel the weight of sin? Though He was the perfect, spotless Son of God, He was executed. He was killed. He died. And He died, beloved, because that is what sin does. Sin's penalty is death. And so Christ died as a sinner and He died in the place of sinners. And He did so paying the penalty that sinners owe. And all of this was a just judgment. I say that again because God treated Christ as a sinner. And therefore, Christ got exactly what sinners deserve. As Christ, that that poor worm of a man, as He was there on that cross, He drank down the cup that was given Him by His Father. the, The cup of God's just judgment. When he drank that cup, he didn't just sip it, but he chugged it down to the dregs for us. What this all means then is that really the the cry of Lamentations 1 is the cry of Christ on the cross. Remember, five times in Lamentations 1 we hear, there is no one to comfort Well, likewise, Christ was alone upon that cross, suffering dereliction in our place. We also heard in Lamentations 1, the people groan. They groan under the weight of sin and God's wrath. Well, Christ too groaned as He was crushed under the weight of our sin. See, this 
brothers and sisters, is why Lamentations is so good for us. It's good for us because it points us to Christ. Sure, it shows us our sin, how ugly it is. That's all true. And it does, in very palpable ways, reveal God's intense wrath against sin. That is likewise true. But most gloriously, it shows us Christ. For all the blood and sweat and tears that Lamentations is, God has given it to us so that we would see our Savior. So that we would see Christ who would place Himself between guilty sinners like us and holy God. So Christian, as you suffer and you will, as you lament and you will, as you make your pilgrimage from this world to the next, know this, there will be difficulty. In God's good providence, sorrow might very well follow you as a shadow. But we are not alone. Sin will not have the last word. And judgment is not what awaits you or I. Remember, Christ is with you even in the midst of your lament. He has triumphed over your sin. And your judgment day, the one that you and I so often fear, has already happened. It took place on the cross some 2,000 years ago. That is when the gavel dropped. Christ has endured that judgment for you. You see, This is the good news of the Gospel. And the good news of the Gospel is intended, brothers and sisters, not only to free us up so that we can rejoice, but it frees us up so that even in this life that God has called us to live, we can lament. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we we ask that You would open our eyes to see Christ, to see Him as precious, to see Him as powerful. We pray that You would help us to see our sin. We pray that where it is appropriate, Your Holy Spirit would bring conviction, but not just conviction. Bring conviction followed by comfort, followed by encouragement. Bring us the law and cause it to thunder over our hearts but bring us the gospel to bind us up and to heal us. We pray that we would be an encouragement to one another. We pray that your word would prove fruitful in our lives and in our families and in this church and in our community. And we pray that you would teach us to lament. Teach us to, to lament as those who know you, our Father, who have Christ as our Savior, and who are empowered and indwelt by your Spirit. We pray that you would do these things for us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.